Hey, if you got your Bible, meet me in Psalm 130. We are continuing our study of the Psalms, and we are in part four of this series called Road Trip Playlist. These are a group of songs of ascent. They are a group of songs within the larger book of songs. In case you're uh, new to the Bible, the word psalms comes from a Greek word. Uh, the Greek word is psalmos, which literally translates into songs. But what I find interesting in that is that the Hebrew people or the Israelites or the Jews, whatever you want to call them, they call this book the Tehillim, which means praises. I find this interesting because often in the language used in a number of these songs is not what we would classify as praiseworthy. Case in point, Psalm 130. Take a look at this. From the depths of despair, O Lord, I call for your help. Hear my cry, O Lord. Pay attention to my prayer. Lord, if you kept a record of our sins, who, O Lord, could ever survive? But you offer forgiveness that we might learn to fear you. I'm counting on the Lord. Yes, I'm counting on him. I put my hope in his word. I long for the Lord more than centuries long for the dawn. Yes, more than centuries long for the dawn. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is unfailing love. His redemption overflows. He himself will redeem Israel from every kind of sin. So perhaps you can see my confusion. This is just talking about how bad and sinful I am. It's not particularly praiseworthy. I don't need to hear about that stuff, you know? I've got enough problems of my own. I don't need any reminders from somebody else about what's wrong with me. In fact, I'm trying to hide all of that or at minimum forget it. You all know what I'm saying? Forget the past, live for the future. We can't change it. Uh, let's just maybe try and learn from it so we can build a better future. They say just live in the moment, find the real you, discover purpose. Just for the record, if you want to preach, you need to learn some of these phrases. People like to hear that stuff. You need to talk about destiny and draw a big crowd and you'll uh, talk about God's will or end times and meaning of life and stuff like that. Except if you're interested in understanding the whole counsel of God's word, then you have to talk about some difficult things like God's character and the human condition. Well, what do I mean by that? It's all right there in verse 3. It says, Lord, if you kept a record of our sins, who's going to survive? More recently, Paul wrote a letter to the Roman church, and in Romans 3.23, he writes, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So that's not particularly uplifting or a positive look on life. I know. Let's skip over all that stuff and talk about something else. If we're being honest, that's kind of our gut reaction, isn't it? I don't know how much thought you've given this, but our gut reactions always, aren't always the best indicators of appropriate responses. Y'all ever wanted to punch somebody in the face? Am I the only one on that? Okay. Apparently some of you have also driven in Wichita. It is not very pleasant. So uh, you try and remain calm. You start quoting scripture to yourself. God is good all the time. All the time God's good. I can refrain from this. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me like punch this man in the face, but that is not what that verse is at all talking about. But in many cases, people make reactionary decisions based on their current conditions. 
Think about it. People who want to lose weight. Day two, I'm hungry, current condition. So I'll eat something. What do I have? Double stuff Oreos. Great. Reactionary decision. Then as well, I'm starting to put on some weight here again. So that's a current condition. I better exercise. That's a positive decision. Exercise is hard. So I'll just take a pill to speed up the whole thing. And that's a reactionary response. And if I've, I've learned anything in life, it's that reactionary responses rarely result in long-term change because there's not enough thought involved. That's why I like to tell you to respond, not react. We need a little time to process our situation. I was once given an acronym called a HALT, and you should HALT in life. Never make a decision when you're hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. thought that was good advice. Halt. Am I hungry? Am I angry? Am I lonely? Or am I tired? Then I need to wait to respond. Now, to be fair, sometimes reactionary responses are completely necessary. I just read a story about a farmer in Nebraska who fell in a corn hopper. Perhaps you uh, also read it. He couldn't get his leg out. And if he would have waited uh, to weigh his options and halt, so to speak, the auger would have drug him in. And let's just say that ends bad. And so he quickly took out a pocket knife and cut off his leg at the shin. It's kind of graphic, but it adequately portrays the paradox of life. Life seems to be one giant, big, balancing act of knowing when to do what makes sense in your own mind and when to trust God. In the words of the wise and ancient theologian, Kenny Rogers, you got no one to hold them, no one to fold them, no one to walk away, no one to run. And so here's the premise this morning that I'm going to operate in. I'm going to argue from this psalm that most people are looking at the wrong conditions in order to make their decisions. Most people's problem in life is that they're trying to get physical answers from spiritual problems. So listen to me now. Your biggest problem in life is not physical in nature. It is not your weight. It is not your job. It is not your spouse. It is not how much money you do or don't make. It is not about how much sex you do or don't have. Your biggest problem in life is sin. It's why every time you try and fix one of those physical setbacks, it rarely results in any sort of change. It rarely solves anything. That's because you're substituting physical for spiritual. Now, before we dig into the psalm, let me uh, show you one more scripture that demonstrates my hypothesis. So, cards on the table. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the second person in the Trinity, and he came to this earth to make a way for your spiritual condition to be resolved. Which, even if you don't believe that, you cannot argue that Jesus didn't do some amazing things while he was on this planet. And if you're wondering, wait, was he even on this planet? I'll just let you know that nobody really argues that anymore. Even the most hardened atheists have to acknowledge that Jesus was a real, historical, factual human being because there's just too much academic evidence to support his existence. There's a number of historians outside of the Bible who record the life of Jesus and all kinds of events in it. And one of the things they all talk about is how many people would travel as far as they could just in order to meet him and see him, quite frankly, because he had developed a reputation as a miracle worker. But one of the historians who writes about Jesus's life that is included in the Bible is a guy named Luke. Luke. 
Luke is not a disciple. Luke was occupationally a physician, but he set out to write an orderly account of Jesus's life and interviewed a whole bunch of eyewitnesses. And in Luke chapter 5, you'll read about some friends who brought their paralyzed buddy to Jesus. It's a very logical thing to do. There are no real medical facilities at the time, and here is a man who has been reputed to heal. Let's see if he can heal our buddy Frank. We don't know his actual name, but I found Frank to be very Middle Eastern in my study. So these guys load up Frank on a cot, get to where Jesus is at. Uh, He's known, Jesus is not just known for his miracles, though. He's also known for his sermons and preaching. And so they get uh, to this house where Jesus is at, and it's jam-packed full of people just trying to hear any of the words that Jesus is uh, speaking. And the friends are like, well, what are we going to do now? There's no way in. And one of them chimes up and says, well, look, we don't actually need to talk to Jesus. One look at Frank, and he's going to know what's wrong. You know, no offense, buddy, but your legs are all jacked up and shriveled up. It's pretty clear you can't walk. Frank's like, well, that's fair, okay? So they concoct this plan to take Frank up to the top of the house, lower him from the roof in front of Jesus, because, you know, at that point, what's the worst that can happen? He's already paralyzed. Uh, It's pretty much a (laughs) death sentence back then anyway. So they quite literally rip the roof off, and somebody else's house, they lower their buddy down, and when Jesus sees him, he says in Luke 5, verse 20, uh, when he saw the friend's faith, Jesus said to the man, friend... Your sins are forgiven. Frank's like, wait, no, what? Uh, Jesus, you've made some sort of mistake. Take a look at my legs. Can't walk. And Jesus is like, no, see the real problem, and it's important to know the real problem where you can't diagnose a solution, and the real problem isn't physical. It's spiritual. This is why before Jesus heals the man, he says your sins are forgiven. See, if you found yourself or the psalmist has found himself, or where our paralyzed buddy has found himself in the depths of despair, before you can rise out of that, not by your own doing, mind you, it's not about pulling up your bootstraps and doing something on your own, but by calling out to the Lord, there has to be an understanding of who you are and how holy God is. I'll say it like this, every path to redemption begins with recognition. Just like with a friends bringing their buddy to Jesus, just like our psalmist in writing his song, it begins with faith that God has the answer. It begins with the understanding that God is God and he is the only one that can help. I pray that you don't have to find yourself in a pit of despair to understand who God is. But sometimes in his mercy... That's what it takes. Some people try all kinds of good, positive self-help remedies. Other people, on the other end, it takes you trying all kinds of bad, evil, self-defeating solutions to figure out that I have no answer. There must be someone bigger than me that can help. So you might want to jot this down if you're taking notes. What's God's character in comparison to our condition? Well, God listens even when you don't. 
God listens even when you don't. Even when you're too stubborn to acknowledge God, even when you try all these physical solutions to spiritual problems, even though Romans 1 tells us that since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what he has made, so that people are without excuse, even though on some level we know God is there, Our human condition is constantly trying to distract us from him. And ultimately, many people find themselves in a pit of despair. Yet even there, God hears our cry. And God listens and comes to meet you exactly where you're at. From the depths of despair, O Lord, I call for your help. Hear my cry. Pay attention to my prayer. So a couple things to point out here. First of all, this idea of depths of despair, uh, it's symbolic language. It's talking about water. Uh, It's nautical language in nature. The best example I could think of, which I don't know if you all have done this, the folks that I talked to about the message beforehand, they did it differently, but uh, in fairness, they were from Michigan and Oklahoma respectively, so, you know, it made sense that they would do it wrongly. But... Uh, As kids, we used to go underwater and scream as loud as we could. And the people that were with us would be above water or even outside of the pool altogether. And they would try to figure out what we were saying. While that game is fun as kids, it's infinitely less fun when it feels like you're in there in real life and nobody is listening. That's why the psalmist pleads, hear my cry, pay attention to my prayer. Perhaps you've been there, or it's what brought you here this morning, because you're there right now. Furthermore, I don't know how many of you all caught this, but our songwriter makes a distinction from verse 1 to verse 2. He says, first of all, LORD, all caps, which if you're new to the Bible, anytime the word LORD is capitalized, it's referencing God's covenant name, the name that he gave himself, the name Yahweh, or I am, When God himself uh, was speaking to Moses in the form of a burning bush that was not being consumed, Moses asks him, "Who, who do I tell people that sent me? And God says, Yahweh, I am. I am who I am. I've always been. I always will be. I am. So our boy says, Lord, all caps, I call for your help. But then he says in the next verse, Lord, lowercase, which is the Hebrew word Adonai, which simply means master. He says, Lord God, Yahweh, Lord Master, pay attention. Point being, if you're going to cry out, make sure you call to somebody who can hear you. Don't be like the prophets of Baal who tried to call out to their God when Elijah challenged them to a little grudge match to say, hey, you call out to your God, I'll call out to my God. We'll see who wins. You can go worship whoever speaks. And they cry out and cut themselves, and but come to find out their God's asleep or not real. And Elijah wins the bet. Uh, God is always there. God is always listening. God is always ready to pay attention to your prayers. Write this down. God makes friends by forgiving sins. You want to talk about God's character, your condition? God makes friends by forgiving sins. Verse 3 says, Lord, if you kept a record of our sins, who, O Lord, notice the punctuation again, could ever survive? Rhetorical question, nobody survives if God keeps a record. 
Nobody but Jesus could ever stand before a righteous and holy God, which is why he makes a great substitution for all of us. He takes on our sin and stands before God in our place, and in turn, we're forgiven. And God sees Jesus in us. The psalmist continues, you offer forgiveness that we might learn to fear you. Circle, star, underline, highlight, whatever you do, that we might learn to fear you. It's kind of weird, isn't it? That forgiveness would lead to fear. I would think power should lead to fear. I would think that you're the God of the universe and created all things, and by the speaking of your word, it could all go away. That would lead me to fear, but that's not what it says. So think about this. If God's forgiveness of us leads to fear, and we are made in God's image, and God says in Ephesians 4.32 that we're to forgive each other as in Christ God forgave us, then it should stand to reason that when we forgive other people who have hurt us, it would lead to them fearing not only us, but also fearing the God who forgave us, right? So an example might help. Imagine I do something to Laura, something stupid where I have to ask for forgiveness. It's hard to picture. I totally understand that. Uh, Rarely ever, if ever, it has happened. But imagine the conversation goes something along the lines of, hey, babe, I might have done something, something that you're not super uh, fond of, but I was on my way to the office, drove by Don Hatton, and you know, they had that amazing black Z71 sitting outside, and it said 0% on it. And you know, we live out in the country on a dirt road. We kind of could use a four-wheel drive, especially with all this rain that we've been having. And I've wanted a Z71 since high school, so surprise, you know what they say, better to ask for forgiveness than for permission. And since Laura is the forgiving type and represents God in this scenario, she doesn't get mad. She doesn't raise her voice. She's just standing there in the kitchen, you know, cutting the vegetables, getting ready for supper. And she says, that's great, babe. Congratulations. Why don't you put the keys there on the counter and points with her knife? How many of you all know I'm not feeling super safe and I don't... I don't like the fact that she's pointing with her knife and I don't like the fact how calm she is speaking to me because I know better than that. We've been married long enough for me to know that. I didn't how that conversation is going. Uh, I'm fearing for my life and I'm fearing for the life of my new truck. But see, God doesn't respond in such a way. God listens to us. God forgives us. He doesn't hold anything against you. He doesn't punish you for anything. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. He says you are forgiven. It's kind of a silly example with Laura because I really didn't do anything to harm her necessarily, yet every sin that you commit is an assault against the character of God because you're made in the image of God, as I've always already pointed out. And yet, over and over again, God says, no, you're still worth it. You're still my friend. I still see Jesus in you, and I love you. In fact, he says, you're more than a friend. You're a child of mine. And this response should generate in you a fear, not in the I'm afraid of flying or I'm afraid of spiders sense of the word, but moreover, I'm afraid of a God who is so gracious and so generous that he would look favorably on me. Uh, Like one of the other psalmist writers, a guy named David says, who am I, 
O Lord, that you would look at me with any regard. I'm nothing compared to you. But God makes friends by forgiving sins. And he so desires to be in a relationship with you because he created you that he's ready, willing, and able to make a way for you to come into a relationship with him. And he was so ready, willing, and able that he sent his only son, Jesus, to die on a cross for you. Here's what else we see about God and us. God saves you in an instant, but delivers you through a process. You're saved in an instant, but God delivers you through a process. Verse 5 says, I am counting on the Lord. Yes, I'm counting on him. I've put my hope in his word. I long for the Lord more than centuries long for the dawn. You see what's happening? He's been forgiven. He stands in fear slash awe of the Lord that God would even do something like that. But now he's put his hope in God's word and he waits for him like centuries wait for the dawn. And not just wait, it's more than that. He says, I long for, I highly desire to see the sun come up. This is a little bit lost on us because we don't have centuries anymore. I guess if you like the devil and watch Game of Thrones, uh, then you know what centuries are. That was a joke. Do not use Game of Thrones jokes, second service. Got it. Okay. Uh, but we really don't know what centuries are, but uh, uh, think Kevin James and Mall Cop. Okay. He is, if some of you got that, maybe not. You can't use that one either. Okay. So there used to be these people who would keep track of things at night and they would have to stay up through the night to make sure nobody would steal anything. In the olden days, they'd stand on a wall. They were called sentries. Newer times, you know, their security guards are at a mall or whatever. Uh, But they weren't supposed to watch these things because uh, most crime happens at night. There's a certain safety in the darkness. This is why the Bible compares sin to darkness. So don't miss the imagery on this. Again, this is poetry. This is a song. And the psalmist is writing that our jobs are to stand and watch and wait for the dawn to shed its light on things that are compelling us towards the darkness. That's why 1 Corinthians 16 says, Be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous and strong Do everything in love. So let me ask you a a very serious question. Do you long for God to shine a light on your sin so that you can become more like his son? Most people will answer that as no because we're trying to hide all of those things. But that's exactly what God wants to do. It's why you're saved in an instant and all your sins have been forgiven, past, present, and future. But once you're saved, you're left on this earth so that you can bring God more glory by going through the process of becoming more like his son, Jesus, and bringing other people into the family of God by showing them everything that God has done in your life, by being saved in an instant and you going through this process of uh, sanctification is what the word is, which is a good segue to my next point because God looks past your biggest failures to offer you a brighter future. That's true about God's character. That he looks past your biggest failures to offer you a brighter future. Here it is in the song. O Israel, hope in the Lord, all caps. For with the Lord, all caps, there's unfailing love. His redemption overflows. He himself will redeem Israel from every kind of sin. 
So you probably didn't realize that that thing that God wished you never would have done or that he wishes never would have been done to you, he wants to flip that around and redeem it so that that other people can see how far you've come and what God has brought you through in Jesus' name and they're going to put their hope in the Lord. So do this for me. Substitute your name in for the people of Israel. Read that passage as, oh, Landon, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is unfailing love. His redemption overflows. He himself will redeem me, Landon, you, from every kind of sin. That is the promise of God. Redemption from every kind of sin. Whatever you're struggling with, God wants to forgive you and offer you the tools to overcome that thing. And so two things I want you to think about as we close. I'm a practical guy, so how does anything I just said play itself out in real life? Well, forgiven people forgive people. I've already alluded to that. Forgiven people forgive people. And since this is true, the question ultimately becomes, okay, so how do I know if I've actually forgiven somebody? Well, I want you to consider this. Forgiveness happens repeatedly until the pain goes away and the desire for revenge goes away. If you find yourself still carrying burdens and a desire for revenge, then you haven't actually forgiven anybody because forgiveness happens repeatedly until the desire for revenge goes away and pain goes away. Because if the Lord kept a record, who could stand? Nobody. And so we need to forgive as Christ has forgave us. Here's what I want you to struggle with uh, also this morning. Forgiven people find people. Forgiven people don't just forgive people. Forgiven people find people. A lot of folks ask me why I named the church New Anthem Community Church, and I want you to know that it wasn't arbitrary. It wasn't just sitting around thinking, what would be a cool name for a church? No, it's taken directly from Psalm chapter 40, uh, where God instructed the uh, writer to record, I waited patiently for the Lord to help me, and he turned to me, and he heard my cry. He lifted me out of the muck and the mire, the pit of despair, and set my feet on solid ground. He steadied me as I walked along. He has given me a new anthem to sing. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Check it. Many will see what he has done and put their hope in the Lord because they were amazed by what he has done. This is, this is my story. It's my favorite scripture. A new anthem. Many people are going to see and be amazed by what the Lord has done. This is what this church is about. Seeing lost people found. Because forgiven people forgive people and forgiven people find people. And if God has done this for you, what does it ultimately say about you if people look at your life and they are not amazed by God's overflowing presence? It says maybe you haven't really fully trusted God yet. 
He says, maybe you're still trying to work things out on your own. Just try harder. It says you're trusting physical, physical solutions for spiritual problems. No, the answer is found in Jesus and in the anointing of his Holy Spirit. And if you're wondering what that word anointing means, then you're going to have to come back next week as we close out this series, Road Trip Playlist from Psalm 133. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for redeeming us through your son, Jesus, your overflowing grace. God, what a beautiful picture of your love picture of a cup just overflowing, overflowing, washing all of us clean, your grace all up on our lives. God, thank you for the free gift of salvation through your son, Jesus. I don't know how you came in here. If you're in a pit of despair, but just know that God loves you, cares for you, and wants to set your feet on solid ground steady you as you walk and forgive you of everything that you've done. Stop looking for physical answers to spiritual problems. Start with Jesus. See where he takes you. God, forgive us of our sin. We're saved in an instant, but it takes a process. Help us process well. Help us journey hard. Help people around us be amazed by you and what you've done in us. We ask all this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.